0: The book of Exodus. We begin today, and this is my third time teaching the Old Testament on a Sunday morning, and I'm just amazed that uh, of all the things I've ever read and discovered, how God just continues to speak. That's what he does, and, and we continue to learn and grow, and we're embarking on a journey here that I think is going to be so rich and so rewarding. Uh, this is where redemption really begins in the Bible, and we're going to see it played out on a grand scale. Uh, Dennis Prager, Uh, spent 50 years studying Torah, the Old Testament, these five books of Moses. And at 50 years, he thought, well, you know, I I have all this information. I want to write a commentary. And he didn't start with Genesis. He began, of all places, with Exodus first. And his thinking was, to him, the Ten Commandments were the greatest thing that was ever given to the human race. He believes that if, if everyone lived by the Ten Commandments, which are here in Exodus, that we would eradicate all evil on the earth. Now, the Ten Commandments are brilliant. They've come down to our day. However, uh, God knew we could never keep them, right? You know, Paul talks about how the law was our schoolmaster. It brought us to Christ. So we need a sacrificial system, which we're going to see begins here in Exodus. Uh, chapter 12, we're going to look at the first Passover. The tabernacle, which later would become the temple here in Exodus. The rise of Moses, not only the greatest leader uh, ever in Israel, maybe the greatest leader ever in all of history. So, you know, your stories here, my story, it is the story of redemption for the entire human race. And it begins in chapter 1, verse 1. And I want to draw your attention to this because I think you all probably would overlook this. It says, Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob. It names in verse 2, Three and four, the 12 tribes. And it says, and those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. These are the names of, that's the first verse. That is the Hebrew title of the book of Exodus. Now you're probably thinking, well, well then why in English does it say Exodus? Well, in the third century BC, 70 Greek scholars got together and they wanted to uh, transcribe the Old Testament, out of Hebrew into Greek. So they called it the Septuagint. That's 70, 70 scholars. And when they came to the second book here, uh, they called it Exodus, which means departure, or to exit, or to go out, because the greater narrative is that Israel is coming out of Egypt. But the original Hebrew title, first verse, these are the names of. Which I think is significant, and by the Holy Spirit, because, you know, sometimes it's not the new knowledge that we're all looking for, right? Everybody wants a heavy revy, this new revelation. I want to know something new about God. Sometimes we have to go back and remember the simplest things. Sometimes they're the most profound. And I think what the Holy Spirit wants you and I to know here is that God knows our names. He knows each and every one of us. There's an old school worship song we used to sing that goes something like this. He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He knows each tear that falls and hears me when I call. Yeah, somebody clap for that. I was scared to death to do that. Listen, he knows my name. Why is that important? Because think of this narrative here. You know, 70 people come to Egypt and then for 400 years they cry out. Two, three million people cry out. They're in bondage, they're suffering, they're in slavery. 400 years, and God wants to know, I've heard every cry, I know every name. God wants you and I to know in this bigger narrative of life of seven, eight billion people on the planet, with so much going on in our world with celebrities and heads of state and all these supposedly important people, that God knows our names. He really does. And Jesus brings this into the light in the New Testament where he says, look, every hair on your head is numbered. That two sparrows, you know, they can't fall to the ground. If God feeds them day and night, how much more does he care about you? Oh, you of little faith. So in a world where very few people even know me personally, there is a God who knows me. That I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And I think sometimes that beats all the knowledge of God we could ever have or all the things we could ever know. That God really does know my name. And so as we go through Exodus, I'm going to bring this out. I'm going to bring out people that we would have never thought would have made it into this record. And what it will tell us is that God sees everything we do and that God cares. Now, we go on to the next verse, uh, verse 5, and it says, And Joseph died, all his brothers and that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly And the land was filled with them. Now, there's a phrase there that is there by design, that Israel was fruitful and multiplied. Now, we've seen that before, right? In Genesis, God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. It was told to Noah again after the flood. And then God makes a covenant with Abraham. He says, Abraham, you know, look at the stars, look at the sand. Your descendants are going to be many. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. That goes to Isaac and to Jacob, finally to Joseph as they come into the land, and then the Bible says, and Joseph died. And when we see someone like Joseph die, right away our first thought is that when the men of God die, movements die, and that's not true. We think if somebody like Billy Graham dies, or the Pope dies, or some great man of faith, movements die, yeah, movements may die, but the move of God goes on. And we're going to say that, see here that Israel will thrive in a strange land. They will thrive in a foreign land. They are fruitful. They are multiplying. So much to the fact that a pharaoh arises who knew not Joseph, verse 8, and he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly or wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they would join our enemies and fight against us and go up out against us in this land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh, Python, and Ramses. And verse 12 says, But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiply and grew, and there was dread of the children of Israel. God wants us to know the story's continuing. Verse 1 says, now these are the names of. That's the way Exodus will begin. Leviticus begins with now. So does Numbers, so does Deuteronomy. God wants us to know the story's continuing. God's people are thriving. They're thriving in a foreign land. And Pharaoh looks around and he's got a problem. These 70 people now in 400 years have become somewhere around 2.5 million people. If you look at Exodus chapter 12, it tells us that the Passover, there were 600,000 men. If there were the same amount of women, there were probably more. That's about 1.5 million, the size of Philadelphia. If you had children, you're between 2 and 3 million people. And Pharaoh looks around, he said, this is a problem. And, And when it says he doesn't remember Joseph, look, the Egyptians were great historians. He knew the story of Joseph. He knew Joseph had spared Egypt in the famine. But this is a new dynasty, and they're looking around saying, we've got trouble here. They're living in Goshen. Uh, that's the delta. They're prosperous. There's something in the water. They're reproducing way quicker than we are. And we've got to do something about this. And Pharaoh makes a colossal mistake. By the way, uh, leaders make mistakes through this pandemic. We're front row seat at what leaders do, right? So Pharaoh puts them into bondage. Right? He begins to, you know, make slaves of them. And then it goes on. He takes one more final step, kind of like the final solution. Uh, verse 13, he made them serve with rigor, made their lives bitter with bondage. Then in verse 15, the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives of who the name was one, Sipher and the other, Puah, and he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, then he shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but rather they served the children and kept them alive. So we see a, a couple of things for the first time in the Bible here. First of all, the rise of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism, the hatred for the Jewish people, makes absolutely no sense if you look at it. It's not rational. It's not rational because the people of God were never, um, they were never a rogue nation. They were never imperialistic. They're not a violent people. And yet here from Pharaoh, and it will go to Nebuchadnezzar, to Belshazzar, to Haman in Persia, to Hitler, to Saddam Hussein. You know, anti-Semitism makes absolutely no sense. It's one of the great proofs for God. There's no other way to look at it than say there's a bigger narrative here. That Egypt represents empire of the world. Pharaoh represents Satan who hates the people of God. Hates them ever since Genesis chapter 3 where there was that prophecy that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of Satan, that there would be a deliverer, a Messiah. Moses, a type of that deliverer. And it's come all the way down into our age. You can Google anti-Semitism. Uh, right now in Europe, they're at the highest level of anti-Semitism since the Holocaust. Makes no sense. And Pharaoh's idea here is to wipe them out and take them off the face of the planet. Now, the midwives, it says, fear God. It doesn't say they love God, which is really colloquial today. Oh, I love Jesus. I love God. No, they feared God. Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. And their wisdom moves them to action, and they begin to spare these children. Now, I don't know what the political construct of the day was. You know, I don't know the rationale here. I don't know anything here. But they disobey the laws of a king. Uh, Verse 15 is the first act of civil disobedience in the Bible, uh, which raises the question, because we're kind of living through that time now, uh, can we disobey the laws of the land? And these two midwives lie to spare children. Is lying not a sin if it's done in the right place? Uh, Let's start with lying. Heard a sermon a long time ago where the pastor said, if you were ever coerced by a genocidal maniac to commit mass murder, and by lying you can spare lives, I will not criticize you for lying. Okay? Outside of that, lying is a sin. Lying is never good. As Christians, we are truth tellers. As people that have the spirit of God, we tell the truth. But in this case, to spare children, I believe it was ordained by God. What about civil disobedience? Again, here in America, for maybe the first time, we are looking at a situation where in California, New York City, you can't have church. Can't gather since March. Uh, Restrictions so stringent against churches with COVID-19 that it's almost impossible to do church at any level. And there are some pastors that have to make the decision, okay, we'll abide by the laws of the land. Other pastors are saying, no, church is essential, we're going to move forward. And everybody has to figure that out. And, you know, you know, I've said it in March, I'll say it again. Right now there are more people in Costco that are in this facility. I have somebody taking drone shots of the parking lot. I stand there during the week. It is packed. And then somebody will say, well, wait a second, that's because people need food. Food's essential. I stand there. Christmas trees, big screen TVs, Godiva chocolate, five boxes of Cheez-Its, ribeye steaks. Come on. How much do you need? Costco is the church of America. The consumers are the parishioners. And so there comes a time where the laws of God supersede the laws of man. And, And listen, let's say we give everybody a mulligan through this. What happens the next time and the time after that? I went back and picked a book off my shelf by Hal Lindsey. Hal Lindsey was the best-selling author, New York Times best-selling author of the 1970s, the entire decade. Uh, Not the number one best-selling Christian author. That genre didn't even exist yet. Uh, Countdown to Armageddon, The Late Great Planet Earth. He wrote all these books on prophecy. I went and picked one off the shelf. And Hal wrote this in the 70s. He said, many Christians in the United States ask me if I th- think the church will see a persecution before the beginning of the tri- tribulation? My answer is that according to recent estimates, three-fourths of the church is already under severe persecution around the globe at this very moment. Remember, communism uh, had not fallen yet. So it's really not a matter of where uh, the ch- whether the church will face severe persecution, but whether it will ever hit the church in the United States. Okay, this is 50 years ago. In my perception of prophecy and current events, it definitely will. And if that day has come, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how all this plays out. But these midwives do an amazing thing. And listen, they're named. Pua and Sifra are named in Scripture. Why is that amazing? Because Pharaoh's not named. And we know Pharaoh's, right? We've been watching the Ten Commandments with Trump and Heston since we were kids. It's on... TV every Easter, right? We know we know Yule Brenner's, Ramses, right? We know who Seti is. We've been the Tut Tut and you know we know pharaohs. And by the way, the Bible's great at historical records, right? When we get to Persia, we know uh, Babylonian Persian kings and Daniel names kings. Abraham comes against the five kings in Genesis; they're all named, and yet pharaohs never named here. Do you know why? Because God knows your name. God knows the names of these two midwives. And we're starting to see for the first time and again Jesus will bring this into the light that in God's kingdom that these are the real heroes. That in God's kingdom the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And we're kind of seeing this law of inverse here where these two women who fear God are named and three millennia later we still know their names. And nothing moves the heart of God, you have to hear this, than acts of faith. Remember Jesus one time is walking in a big crowd and a woman touches the hem of his garment, the Syrophoenician woman. And Jesus looks at his disciples and said, who touched me? Because the power went out from him. And they're like, Lord, there's tons of people here. What do you mean who touched you? And yet he was moved by her faith. To the centurion who said, you know, you don't need to come to my house. Just say the word and my servant shall be healed. And Jesus said, I haven't found such faith in all of Israel. And God knows the names of people who act by faith, and the faith of these two women changed the course of a nation because they feared God. And, And let me give you an axiom. When your fear of God goes up, your fear of man goes down. And you need to look at your life and figure that out, right? When the fear of God, right, when the knowledge of God goes up, the fear of man goes down. And I think in this pandemic, I think people are in one of two categories. Your your faith is either expanding, right? It was all crappy in the beginning for all of us. But for a lot of us, we're taking a step back and faith in God is actually expanding. We're seeing, you know, even here we see Catholics coming, people that never came to church before are coming, people watching on live stream, it's a beautiful thing. Or you're going the other way, where you're getting more bitter and wondering where's God in the middle of all this? And it's really a, a, a check on your spirit and saying, where are you in the fear of God? Now, Pharaoh doubles down in verse 18. The king called for the midwives. He said to them, why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are lively, and they give birth before the midwives come. <laughs> you know, they're like the Egyptian women. They get up adorals and all that with music playing and birthing rooms. Uh, actually, here it says these women are like animals. Like they pop them out and they get up and start doing the dishes. No big deal. <laughs> Therefore, God dealt with the midwives and the people multiply and grew very mightily. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he, God, provided households for them. And so Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who was born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. This is the beginning of Pharaoh's heart becoming hard. Just cast him in the Nile. And and by the way, it's easy to look back and say that was Egypt, right? That practice lasted all the way through Rome through the great civilizations of Greek and Rome, where we get democracy and advanced mathematics and architecture. It's called infanticide. Uh, they didn't know how to kill a baby in the womb, so they waited till they were born and abandoned them, and here, throw them in the Nile. Now, the Nile was a god, so I'm sure there was political justification. We are giving these children to the gods. But isn't it amazing that how in this society you would be walking and seeing babies floating down a river. What was that like? A lot more palpable in our day that this is all done in a clinic and in back rooms. The heart of man has never changed. Pharaoh doubled down here, but again, God's on the move. Chapter 2, verse 1. It said, And a man of the house of Levi went and took a wife of the daughter of Levi, So the woman conceived and bore a son. This is the first appearance of Levi jeans in the Bible. Come on, give me a break. (laughs) And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, Stephen in Acts chapter 7 said that, that this was no ordinary child. She hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes And uh, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. This is Miriam. And then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. And her maidens walked along the riverside, and when she saw the ark among it in the reeds, she sent for the maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. And she had compassion on him. This is God and she said this is one of the hebrew children somehow compassion wells up in this egyptian woman and then the sister said to pharaoh's daughter shall i go and find a nurse for the hebrew uh, of the hebrew women that may nurse this child for you and pharaoh's daughter said to her go so the maiden went and called the child's mother then pharaoh's daughter said to her take this child away and nurse him for me so i will give you your wages So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she called his name Moses. Remember that? It's not a Hebrew name. If you named your child Moses because you thought it was a biblical name, it's actually an Egyptian name, which means to be drawn out of the water. This is the beginning of redemption. God will start with a man. God will start... Redemption through this man Moses. But can I tell you, the act of faith begins with Moses' parents. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23 says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. They weren't afraid of the king. And by the way, God knows their names, and so do we. In Numbers 26, 59, it's Amram and Yoshebel. And, and I want to bring this out because out of all that's going on in Egypt, of all the power brokers of Pharaoh and Moses, and all the characters are going to say, God knows the name of these parents. And it has to ring important to you because there's a lot of parents in the room, a lot of future parents, a lot of people that think what you do is... It, Every day is insignificant. You know, I'm changing diapers, and I'm cooking meals, and I'm putting all this labor in, and here's a God out of 2.5 million people that says, there's Yom Ram, there's Yoshebel. And they might not part the Red Sea, but they've changed the course of a nation by faith because they feared God and not the king. When they saw there was something about this child now, I don't know what it was about Moses, Right? It says he was beautiful. He, there was something special about him. I, I think what the Bible saying is there was a calling resting on him. And see, that's what Christian parents are doing. You're bringing out the calling of your child. You know, we're not like the world. You know, we're not, we're not trying to make them Olympi, Olympic athletes. You know, every, every girl I've ever coached in basketball, every parent thought this, this child would one day play college basketball and be in the Olympics. It's not what we're doing. Now, that's wonderful if your child has that gift. We are looking for the calling God has placed upon them. And by faith, Moses' parents gave their child away. Uh, One of the most freeing things that ever happened to Monica and me happened when our daughter was one years old. Brand new to church, brand new to faith, and, you know, we, we played the game so many play here. I go down and watch it between services where you put the child in the nursery, and you leave, and they cry, and you go back... And we played this game for a couple weeks and finally the pastor's wife came up and she said, you're raising them to leave. And that was it. We just went to service and said, this is great. And what the Bible's setting up here is anything you give to God, he gives back immeasurably. Jesus said, give, it'll be given to you. Press down, you know, running over, back into your bosom it will be given. Moses' parents give up this child who's going to die anyway. And look what God does. Look how he pays them back. Uh, She gets him back through the time of nursing. Now, I think my son nursed till like three years old, right? He'd eat spaghetti and meatballs and then want to nurse, right? I got to think she extended this a little, don't you, right? Which means maybe three to four years, there's enough you can sow into the heart of a child they'll never forget. Can't imagine what... Moses' mother must have instilled into Moses at this young age. She gives the child away. She gets the child back. He has royal protection, and she gets paid for it. But the first step is you have to give away first. Deuteronomy 6, this is for parents, says he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, not the moms, the dads. That's why a father in the home is so critical. That the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born that they may rise and tell them to their children that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart, whose spirit was not faithful to God. This is the role of parents. You have a high and mighty calling. This is why we value children's ministry. This is why we have a Christian school. We're trying to raise children in the fear of God. Now, next week we'll get into Moses. Next week we'll start to look at how redemption plays out. But I want to end on what we see in the New Testament. I just want to give you two verses. And The first one's in Luke chapter 9. I'll set up the story for you. You know it well. Where one day Jesus climbs a mountain. We're not sure where the mountain is. We know it's in northern Galilee. He takes Peter, James, and John. And the scripture tells us that Moses and Elijah appeared to him. Now, for all those who understand, Moses never made it into the promised land. He finally did on the Mount of Transfiguration. And it's recorded there that they appeared in glory, right? So, in other words, they saw Jesus for the first time the way John would see him in the book of Revelation, right? His glory came out. Peter would write later, We didn't follow cunningly devised fables, we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord, but we were eyewitnesses. We were on that mountain. And Luke says, and behold, two of them talked to Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease or his death, which he's about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So they appeared, and they're telling Jesus about the cross in jerusalem that word deceased there is exodus they talk to jesus about his exodus now that's good news for you and me because death for us is not the end of it all as atheists tell us but it is a exodus or going out to another place do you ever go to the airport and you're going to like a business trip to columbus but you're passing all these gates that are like Rio de Janeiro and Hawaii, all these places you'd rather go. Death for the Christian is gonna be like one day where you walk to a gate and the departure sign says heaven. That'll be your exodus. Peter who was on the mountain said, moreover I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease, that word there again is exodus. So you put these two scriptures together, and what we discover is that redemption is only possible through death. The only salvation for mankind is through death. It is through blood. That's why the art piece brought that out in such a brilliant way and had both testaments collide. We're going to see it when Passover comes, where the final act is death of the firstborn, and the only way through is through the blood of a lamb. Thousands of lambs, but singularly one lamb. The bigger narrative is every human being ever born was born into Egypt, born into bondage, born into slavery. The Bible says that you and I were led by Satan to do his will. He is the God of this world. He is Pharaoh. And Satan has two schemes. Schemes for people that don't know Christ is to blind their eyes. How many of you were blinded for a period of time before you saw the beauty and the revelation of Jesus? Now that you're in the kingdom, his strategy is to tempt you that God isn't good, he's not fair. Look at what's going on in our world. Why are people dying? Why are people sick? Why is there suffering? Paul said we shouldn't be ignorant of his devices. We live in a world where people are in bondage, bondage to lust and greed and sex and money and power. I remember Robbie Zacharias saying, who has it worse? A kid in India sitting on a trash heap, sifting through trash? Or a woman in Beverly Hills looking at a thousand pair of shoes and not knowing what to wear? Who has it worse? We live in a world where people are still in bondage, bondage to the past, bondage to prescription drugs. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And there is a God of redemption who wants to take us from bondage to freedom. Way before Mel Gibson, you know, God was yelling freedom to the human race. And he's calling us out. See, that's what it is. It's a calling out. By the way, the word church in Greek, ekklesia, means to be called out. If you're a believer, God has called you out. He's called you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. But the redemption was through the blood of Jesus. And so as we go through the book of Exodus, God is calling us out. He's constantly calling a people out of a people out of a people That's why there's denominations, by the way, right? Denominations go south. God calls a new people out. And we have a new denomination, and that goes south. And God calls another people out, and it's constantly calling. What's God calling you out of today? What's God saying? You know, enough is enough. I'm calling you out of that. And the call is always out of something and into a greater freedom. And I don't know what it is for you. I want to hear the voice of God. I want to know what it is for me. Because I know whatever I give to God, he's going to give back to me over and over again. And I haven't figured everything out, but I figured this out. I am free. I am free today to choose to walk with God or against him. I never had that choice before, but I have it now. I have that freedom, and that freedom has taken me to a place where I'll never turn back. And there's a grand invitation, right? Right? It's a grand invitation for everybody in this room, wherever you are, to experience the freedom we have in Jesus Christ. Because redemption begins at the cross, and it continues through the ages. And as we look at the life of Moses, we'll unpack it week by week by week.